This podcast is presented by The Ed Narrative, a place for reflective discourse on education. Visit theednarrative.com to subscribe to this podcast or our blog. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. And please, leave a review to help us grow this community of educators. Welcome to episode 18 of the Ed Narrative Podcast. My name is Darren Ralston, and I am the producer of this podcast. This time around, we'll be talking to John Antonetti about task design, engagement, uh, maybe even a little bit about rigor. Uh, I first encountered his work when he came to visit us in Charlottesville uh, and do a workshop. This was a couple years ago, um, and he, he presented for the instructional coaches and I believe the LTIs, I can't remember for sure, but um, anyway, I was really impressed and I enjoyed the uh, work he'd done on rigor and really what constitutes rigor. Um, So when I saw that he was coming back this year for our annual PD day called Making Connections, um, I reached out to him to see if he'd be willing to do a podcast episode with me, and well, you can tell he said yes, because here we are. Um, so uh, it was good to have him uh, sit down with me, and we started off, I, I said, well, let's do a sound check just to get the levels right, and he said, okay, and um, so you're going to hear the sound check first. I, I kept it because I, I liked it, so um, so that's that, and then, and then that goes in after about a minute into the, uh, into the interview. So anyway, there we have it. Let's go ahead and get started. Yeah, he tell me about your grandson. He went as a pumpkin nice. for Thanksgiving. I mean, for Thanksgiving. For <laughs> <laughs> he went as a pumpkin for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, he's he's going to be a pie later. <laughs> a pie by Christmas, exactly. He's, he's really growing up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I watch people lose their minds, and I just cannot believe it's happening to us. Yeah, yeah. But it's just so much fun because we get to, when he gets fussy, we just get to leave. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you, uh, I'll uh-huh. see you next week. <laughs> yeah, he's yours. That was great fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is a benefit. And off we go to a movie. Yeah, <laughs> right. I wanted to get into your new book, and I haven't. Sure. But I did read okay. through um, the 17,000 yeah. book. Um, so I was looking through that, and I know that the, what is it, Powerful Task? Powerful Task Design. Is the one that you've got out now. Yeah. Um, I know there was a lot mentioned in the tasks, uh, or about tasks in the in the previous right, book. Right, right. Um, so how do these two dovetail, just to kind of see what the relationship is, since... I know I'm not going to be able to really pull right. a lot from, from the new book. Well, the first book, um, if, if you had a chance to go through the first book, the first book was kind of our journey of how we um, were defining engagement in the 17,124 classrooms across mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. So um, interesting enough, when ASCD markets it, they almost market it as a leadership book. We really wanted it to be much more about teachers looking at te- the design yeah. elements of a task. Yeah. So. Um, so the first book, I think, went into more of a, I'm afraid, onto the leadership bookshelf. I would say that's um, definitely and that's my how, experience yeah, of it, the, especially with the idea of the walkthrough. Yeah, that's how they pushed it. So. And we were just, we didn't want it to be a book about the walkthrough. We wanted right. to look at the data, mm-hmm. and then that data should suggest where we go next in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so by the time we got to the second book, um, my co-author for the first book and partner for many years, Dr. Jim Garver, mm-hmm. um, died of cancer in 2014. Literally three months before the book was published. So he saw the cover. He saw the finished product, but he didn't get to hold a complete book. So after Jim passed away, um, one of the things that that we knew going into the book um, that ASCD kept saying to us is, you know, you have a 
a book you're writing in 2015 for educators, and there's no chapter on technology. <laughs> and and our response sounds a little trite, but basically we said, you know, we don't have a chapter on pencils either. We right. don't have a yeah. chapter on school buses or cheerleaders or football teams. Schools have all that, but what we were trying to get at is what in the task brings about engagement, mm-hmm. not not to minimize it, but not even the relationship between teacher and student, not not anything other than the engaging qualities of the task. Mm-hmm. So by the time um, ASCD rolled that book out, we had already started working with Dr. Terry Stice, who's from University – well, she works at Western Kentucky, but she is also the director of technology for 42 schools in the Grec region of Kentucky, Louisville to Bowling Green. Is that the Grec area? Then? Yes. Okay. I hadn't yeah. heard that name yeah. before. Well, it, it stands for Green River Regional Educational oh, Cooperative. So it has, okay. it's an acronym. That's it's an educational okay. yeah, <laughs> acronym. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Terry is just this masterful, um, unassuming lady who just knows the power of technology to engage kids. And so when we started working together at, um, about eight years ago, certainly while Jim was alive, we were, we were all good friends, um, Terry would come to me and say, you know, what you just had us do or what you just had the kids do was really, really powerful. You know, you could increase the sense of audience if they were broadcasting that to their parents at work while they were doing that from the classroom. And here's the app that will do that. Mm-hmm. So Terry just has this this brilliance, this, um, again, this ease of, there's an app for that. Here's the way sort we can like move it. Sort of able to swim in that. In absolutely, that absolutely. And, and, but yeah. what I loved about her was she was, um, sometimes people who love technology love technology for the sake of technology right, exactly. and what they get out of it. So Terry's whole philosophy fit beautifully with ours in that if the task design is not powerful, then the technology amplifies its strengths or its weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we started working a lot together with her member schools on how do we uh, help teachers build powerful, engaging cognitive tasks and then decide what technology piece you add to it to either make it um, have more access to audience or authenticity or mm-hmm. any of the engaging qualities from the front of our work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I like that approach. I mean, I'm an instructional coach here in the right. district. And so, and that's how I first encountered your work was when you came in uh, and we talked about rigor, right. uh, the rigor divine. Um, but the the idea of, of using technology for technology's sake is always something that's never really sat yeah. well with me yeah. either. And I have found ways, though, to use it as sort of a megaphone for right. the, the thing that needs to be done. So. Right, I like the megaphone idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just cranking it up to yeah, 11. Exactly. <laughs> Ex- exactly, yeah, exactly. So yeah. we had talked a little earlier about uh, being in South Carolina and Kentucky. Um, what um, what sort of um, schools and populations are you working with primarily, or is it not really it, easy to... No, Darren, it's really all the way across the board. I... Um, this, the work I started in Horry County, South Carolina, where Myrtle Beach is, is I was um, I was given as a gift uh, about 12, 10 years ago their lowest performing elementary schools, the five mm-hmm. lowest elementary schools. Um, they are a school that of, of these were schools of great poverty. Mm-hmm. The district has um, great resources, almost an embarrassment of resources, in that they have so many things. Those schools that were really struggling were drowning in resources. So I was asked to come in and find the one thing that we're going to do across this elementary school this year to move kids. Right. And um, you know the work. It's typically um, how do you get kids across the rigor divide? And and Mm -hmm. sometimes that seems counterintuitive to people because they assume that children of poverty don't have the background knowledge and the skills. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's, those are actually the kids you have to jump across first. They have mm-hmm. to get across that rigor divide and go into analytical tasks of making sense and telling what they see 
otherwise we may as teachers kind of run over what they see with what we see. Mm -hmm. And our background is so different from theirs. Mm -hmm. I think we do a disservice by not letting them be the natural learner and say, here's what I'm seeing in this text. Here's what I'm seeing in this stimulus, this, this visual, um, and starting with what they do have. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And one of the things I learned, I was an English teacher prior to Mm -hmm. being a coach. One of the things I learned from, you know, doing readings with my kids, um, was to just wait a minute. Yeah. See where it's going, you know, because, um, there can be a very thoughtful reading of a text or, or an issue. And if the kid's able to keep it consistent to a principle, Mm -hmm. then there is definitely a train of thought that is, that is worth exploring. Absolutely. And I'm afraid so so often with, with kids in schools like that, we stop their train. Yeah. Right. We don't even let their train leave the station. We just start running with our locomotion. Yeah. 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 So, so those schools, what was interesting about those schools is um, I never had the same five schools from years to year because mm-hmm. as we would graduate a school, we would get another school. Um, so you mean same building or same, same population? Same, same district uh, with 35 buildings. Okay. Um, I was always working with four or five at a time for a year. Um, in those schools, what's great fun for me personally is I get the chance to do demo lessons. So sometimes the work was planning. Sometimes the work was looking at the data to figure out where we were going. But for me, the most fun was um, because of our time constraints, I might walk into a classroom, fourth graders, and teach the first day of a reading lesson series, send the kids out for 20 minutes, debrief with the teachers, do day two, mm-hmm. send them out. So we we'd, would pull a week worth of literacy into one really <laughs> one really strenuous day for the kids. Right, but, um, yeah. but then the teachers were then asked to take that, tweak it, and make it their own the next week, and mm-hmm. then we would follow up. So that work has been great fun with me for me, but it's, uh, it's in schools of, of poverty, of real need. I also have the great fortune to work in um, a school in Connecticut that has the highest per-pupil expenditure of any public school in the state, I mean, in, in the, of the country, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what's fun to work there is um, these kids literally come ready to take the ACT. I mean, right, in yeah. second grade, they're yeah. ready. So it's interesting to see how the instruction, um, you, you could almost say the instruction doesn't have to be highly engaging. Mm-hmm. Those kids are motivated enough. Um, so what's fun working with that school district is how do we keep those kids who already have so much moving forward right. through engagement? Right. So, so it's a wide range of everything in between, too. Yeah. One of the things that you just said that I found interesting is drowning in resources can you explain sort of how that situation can come up because i think i think i know what you mean but i want to i want to kind of get a a read on on how you i i think again one of the things that technology has done for us in our profession well technology and and just um um, the research we have now and the options schools have for where we could go is it, it almost it's almost the antithesis of focus Mm-hmm. We can be one of these schools. We can be this and this program, this idea, this philosophy, instead of just what is good baseline instruction? What is first line instruction supposed to look like? I even think we've got schools who spend way too much time talking about their RTI or their interventions. Right. When if we changed just the entry into our instruction, we wouldn't need those same interventions. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in my schools where, where they have a wealth of resources, it's because they have this person who's a, who's in charge of bringing keg instructors into the building. And mm-hmm. they have this person who's technology integration, and they have this person who's helping them with um, reading strategies. And, and it's it's so many different. I have, I had a teacher once meet me the first day in a new school say, 
okay, I've heard good things about you, but I want you to know you're one of seven consultants I will see this month. <laughs> so I'm going to decide this week if you're going to be my consultant and if you're going to be the focus. Yeah. yeah. And and then I got to turn around and say, well, exactly. That's why I'm here because I'm going to help you focus. Right. And I almost don't care what it is. Right, right. I mean, I think there's a little bit of the Hawthorne effect that says if a collective team of teachers think uh, – strategy a will really work then they will work to make sure it really works mm -hmm. but if it's one more thing that's being right. done to us or asked of us um i just think it's really easy to get overwhelmed and lose focus okay yeah sort of just too many irons in yes the fire. yes yeah okay thank you i was i was just i was like okay i think i know where we're going with that yeah but and then I think the thing with the work that Jim and I were learning as we were doing the walkthroughs, um, as we were doing all that research on engagement, was that um, any of the places we could go into in terms of programs or ideas or philosophies are still predicated upon what are kids going to be doing in the, at their desk. Mm -hmm. And so all of our work can come back to – I mean, if, if you're a school that has spent um, energy into building keg instructors as part of your collaboration mm -hmm. uh, in the classroom, then – then we want to make sure that the tasks they're doing in that collaboration have the right amount of rigor and engagement. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a school who's going one-to-one -one for the first year, we want to make sure that that one-to-one -one is pushing the engagement part and the cognition part of the lesson design, not just not just the management. Mm -hmm. So I think our work uh, slides in pretty easily anywhere because it's mm -hmm. so foundational to what we're doing. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things I like about the concept of, of you know designing a task and then putting the technology after mm -hmm. um, is that you're starting from the concept. Right. And, and I, I mean, you know, I think you, you said as much, but it, it's just, it, it takes and it builds it out from the important to the ancillary. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. Um, so, so um, looking at that, I was thinking um, maybe about uh, transitioning into um like the Bloom's taxonomy piece that you, sure. you bring up in seven and seventeen thousand. Then I was also wondering, conversely, um, I talked with uh, John Almerod and he'd mentioned yes, you in yeah. a conversation, it's and a uh, I was wondering, yeah, he's great. He he and I actually grew up in the same neighborhood. Oh, is that right? Yeah, oh, so, I love it. So, um, but uh, I was wondering, he's talked a lot about the solo taxonomy. Have right. you looked at that? How does that compare? Which I think I think, um, and again, John can speak to this so much better than I. We went with the Bloom's taxonomy just because it's the predominant. Right. And we were trying right. to take people with teachers where they were. And so that's why we, we played with that. I think the solo taxonomy fits beautifully right into our work, too. One of the things that I know, and all of Hattie's work would talk about, is the balance between deep diving and surface. Mm -hmm. So we would call that one, two, slash three, four mm -hmm. in, in our rigor divide. Um, and I think John and I both would, would agree that there are times you don't want to wade kids into the deep right you want yeah. them thrown in the deep so they can see what's worth looking at down there mm -hmm. and then we can come back and we can fill in the skills so so i think if if we i think the connection is if we think of blooms not the way we've bastardized it right we've bastardized it into a sequence yeah that kids have to have some knowledge before they can that comprehend. it's a procedural yes. thing and i'm telling you i'm watching a seven-month-old grandson right now mm -hmm. he has no background knowledge <laughs> and we are not building any background knowledge. He just has experience after experience where he's figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. So he is doing deep dive right now in his life. Right. Sometimes very literally. little shallow. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. As he falls, he decides what he's going to do next. Yeah. You know, do I scream yeah. or do I try to roll over? Yeah. yeah. Do I laugh? So I think I think the taxonomies are not um, 
exclusive. I think mm-hmm. we have to reframe the way we looked at blooms. Okay. I mean, I think even Crathwald and, and Tom Gusky mm-hmm. would say that it was never meant to be a sequence. Mm-hmm. Somehow in our pre-service teaching programs, we turned it into you do this, then it moves to that, then it moves to this, and then ultimately kids make it to right. Well, and I think levels. that comes from the way that schools design. I agree. I, mean, I agree. It, you know, because that's, that's how I was taught. Right. Right. And, and when I when I started, this is fourteen years ago that I that I went in through that part of my right. my uh, career, starting off. The, the image was a set of stairs. Right. Yes, you know, it, and it, a, the first the one, the second, and that was that was yeah. where it went, and or it was. The, the pyramid right. and at the pinnacle, you know. It just in in small doses, you have that mm-hmm. upper level. Yeah. One of the things I think is we tell teachers this. You know, if you know the hardest math problem you're going to be doing in this unit, if you know the most complex poem you're going to have kids read, give it to them on day one. Mm-hmm. Not expecting all the vocabulary control, all the procedural connection, but let them just make sense. And I think if we throw kids in, first of all, just the formative nature of that that I get all kinds of feedback from day one about where I need to go next as kids struggle to make sense when when knowingly we were designing a moment where we are not teaching them the sense to use. They mm-hmm. just get to make the sense. Mm-hmm. So use this logic to get to that right, point. Right, right. Because yeah. I think I think our sometimes our, our weaknesses, I, I think this is true of, in, in all adults, in all people, um, a weakness is usually just a strength overdone. Mm-hmm. Can you explain? Well, so I think a weakness I see in teachers sometimes is that um, I'm not going to let my kids struggle with this math problem and make connections and find the smaller problem. I'm going to, because I'm really good at this, I'm going to barely, carefully, slowly, clearly walk you through the steps of solving this problem. Mm -hmm. And so because kids see how elegant our solution is how easy it is why wouldn't i want that too as a learner Mm -hmm. so i think our strength then becomes the weakness because kids then get a problem they don't know how to solve Mm -hmm. and they think i need to look like mr antonetti did when he solved this right and i can't right instead of letting kids see okay when you don't know how to solve a problem when you don't know how to attack this poem first of all you find something that is true that connects to something you already know right that first thing yeah that entry point yeah entry point yeah um so, like, I'm thinking of the concept of playfulness with, right. with it. Where, how would that figure into that sort of philosophy? I, I think it, it fits in beautifully. Um, literally, we say that often is give kids an image and let them play with it. Mm-hmm. Give kids a map and let them play with it. Um, now, how long, how long is that play? The play is long enough that, that every kid can see a truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes people say we want kids to be hooked into the content. Mm-hmm. I don't want to think of it just as a hook. I want kids to tell me a truth. Let's say we're looking at the first stanza of Lewis Carroll's um, uh, Jabberwock. Mm-hmm. By definition, by design, by word choice, Lewis Carroll has established a first stanza that should allow the reader to be confused just right. because of the unusual words that he has yeah. created. Um, so if I walk in and I start reading that first stanza, I'm going to put my mood, my tone, my interpretation on it for kids. So rather than do that, I'm just going to give them just the first stanza and say, you know, all I want is I want you to read this and then pull out your phone. There are 72 different emojis. What's the emoji <laughs> yeah. you're feeling as a reader right now? Okay. And I think some people read that first stanza and because of the particular words that speak to them, they, they see a lightness mm-hmm. while others see a darkness or a fear. The majority of kids, I think, honestly, just pick the emoji that looks like I'm really confused. Mm-hmm. And so I think rather than saying, okay, why are you confused? I want to ask the question, what did Lewis Carroll do in the way he crafted this stanza that elicited confusion? Mm-hmm. As if confusion is a 
valid response. Right. Because it is. Right, it is. Um, and so when kids say, I'm sorry, I just don't, there are too many words I don't understand here, but they look somewhat familiar. Mm-hmm. Boy, you've just, you've just honed in on, his, on the author's craft right mm-hmm. now. So let's take it to the second stanza, and you tell me if the emoji stays the same. Are you still feeling the same thing? And most kids will, who went from confused will say, nope, I got dialogue, I got somebody talking, I'm seeing some action. So they, they reference the elements of a yeah. literary narrative, and then now they're no longer confused. Mm-hmm. They're excited, they're scared, they're nervous, but they know from whence that comes in, his, right. in the word choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think that moment of play doesn't always have to be um, – well, I say it this way, and if it's offensive, I apologize. I think the moment of play doesn't mean we have to go out and buy a lot of crap mm-hmm. at, at Oriental Trading mm-hmm. and let kids make something. Right. I'm not opposed to that. Right. But I think play is, is a more cognitive moment of puzzle finding. And, right. Um, and, and, and you tell me what's true. So if Brillig sounds like brilliant to you, and so mm-hmm. that makes it feel light and airy, that is true. Go with that, yeah. If Brillig, yeah. twas Brillig sound, twas, twas Brillig, that reminds me of the... The, the story I know about Christmas that starts with twas. So I think twas a story's coming. Christmas, yeah. yeah, that makes sense too. The the truth of what you're telling me is what's right there in the stanza. Mm-hmm. But your reaction to the to that truth, we should all see your truth. Mm-hmm. We may have different reactions. Right. And so I think a lot of play is when I'm when you see my move on the field or in the math problem, you should understand why what I did makes sense. It may not be the way you do it. Mm-hmm. So I think play kind of leads to, and I think we lose that with young children. If they don't play, if you watch young children play, they change the rules of their games as they're playing. Yeah, they do. To, to make them more meaningful, to make it easier, to so, make it harder. No, I'm they're, sorry, they're always, but I'm flying right now. Exactly. They, they just do that. you know. And I, yeah. I put the tutu on my head because everybody knows it could be a tutu, but now it's now I'm a Spice Girl or I'm, a, yeah, you know, right. I'm Ariana Grande. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and when kids play that way, I think that's the moment where they have crossed over the regular divide. Mm-hmm. They're making meaning. Well, I and think the rules it frees are them. Yeah, it frees them from the constraints. It, like, the way I hear you uh, explaining it almost makes me think that there's a, an element of maybe impishness yes, in it. Yes, I like that. With, uh, with the idea of, of play as, as it sounds like you're describing it. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, let me try this thing and see what happens. Yeah, and, yeah. and while I think that can definitely be physical, it can definitely be collaborative. Mm-hmm. What I really want to make sure I'm doing with my class is making it cognitive. It mm-hmm. is a cognitive moment of play. Mm-hmm. Again, it certainly could be collaborative, and that that's going to make it more engaging. It certainly mm-hmm. could be, I'm going to use the word producty. Producty. Uh, yeah, product-y. sure, we'll go with it. <laughs> and, I, and what I mean by that is not product centric, yeah. but there is something being visibly manipulated, so you can see your thoughts forming uh-huh. as you're building something, right. or, or arranging something, or sorting something. Uh, just something so that there's a visible moment of your struggle. I'm seeing how you're struggling. I'm seeing how you're making sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as I say the word struggle, that doesn't sound like play. But if you watch kids play, they are struggling to get this thing to do that for them, mm-hmm. to get this student, th- to get this friend to play this game right. when we started yeah. playing this other game. Right. And so I think it's just that, that joy of manipulating your environment mm-hmm. um, in, in the direction you want to go. So I'm wondering if we can take that and – you know, the idea of pattern comes mm-hmm. up in your work. So how can you connect maybe what we've been talking about into pattern and how that figures into well, like, I, the cognition it, and, yeah. and all of that? Um, I jokingly say everything we've really learned, we already knew from Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. So I think cognition that crosses into rigor is brought to you by the number three. Okay. And what I mean by the number three is if, you, if we think about the way the brain makes sense, the brain makes sense by looking at a moment, deciding 
first of all, if it can hurt us, right. if it's something we right. want. And then secondly, if we decide it's safe, uh, we decide we want it, how we want to manipulate it. So I think the brain typically goes to compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. So let's say um, I'm, a, I'm a young child. I've just discovered a tree. Mm-hmm. I've just discovered a tree. And it's the first time I've, I'm really paying attention to the way the, the sunlight comes through the tree. And I'm getting this moment. I don't think I have a full concept of what's happening yet mm-hmm. until I go look at another tree. That looks quite different. And yet it is still tall and firm and round at the bottom and larger at the top with these fluttery things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now my brain generates a hypothesis about what this thing is. The rule of three says I don't get a concept until I see three things that have the same uh, truth in it, mm-hmm. but that look completely different. Okay. So Some unifying yes, principle. So if I'm detect. learning what a mammal is, and right. I've seen a cat and a dog, I may understand that a mammal has hair and uh, lives in the backyard. Right. It's not until I see a bat and I have to deal with, what is this bat? Could this bat be a mammal? It also has hair. It's not in the backyard. I've got to redefine mm-hmm. the concept in my head. So mm-hmm. it takes three examples of a concept for mm-hmm. something to form. That, and that's the patterning piece. Yeah, that, that reminds me. I mean, I, with, with my little, little guy, he's, um, he's learning to speak right now. Right. And so anything that's covered by a diaper is poop. Right? Yes, yes. And it's like it doesn't matter if it's a body part or That's if it's exactly the thing itself. Right. You know, exactly he just right. points to anything that would be covered by that diapper. Right. And yeah, so with, that's with, exactly like that fits the same and, and thing. And that's that a child who cannot come or start with background knowledge. They have to start with analysis of their background. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. <laughs> right. But, but right. so my own seven-month-old grandson, when he was three and a, three months old, my daughter and son-in-law helped me play a little game with him and my daughter would stick her tongue out at him at max this, mm-hmm. this beautiful boy well, that's baby. The name of my son. yeah oh really okay <laughs> yeah. so i knew we were yeah. connecting so <laughs> our beautiful max um when his mother would wake him up or he would wake up and my daughter was there she would stick his her tongue out at him and blow raspberries and mm-hmm. just try to get him to re- repeat the, the motion my son-in-law marvelous man has an extended frenulum so his tongue cannot extend past his lips oh okay so he can't stick yeah, his yeah. tongue out so when, when Taylor would wake up to Max or Max would wake up to Taylor, um, Max figured out very quickly, okay, this one doesn't stick his tongue out. <laughs> this one doesn't do so, that. Yeah. So it was interesting to watch because Max slowly extended the pattern, took it further. When my wife was there, he would stick his tongue out at my wife. So there was for huh. a, a little while kind of a gender thing where Max right. recognized. So over the, over the summer, I grew just a little bit of facial hair. My son, my son-in-law has a beard, mm-hmm. and so Max wouldn't. The stick bearded his tongue ones out of can't do no, that. Yeah. No, So I again, I didn't have <laughs> much funny. of an investment in my in my stubble, right. so I shaved it off, and and Max would stick his tongue out at me. That's funny. And so even at four months of age, we have the ability mm-hmm. to make sense through patterning. Mm-hmm. Now the patterns get confirmed and revised and change as we go, and that's that that deep dive thing I think that we want to talk about is that if kids get across. They may not get accuracy, right. but they will get a pattern. Mm-hmm. And if then we give them, instead of feedback, another thing to consider, mm-hmm. which may be the best feedback, then the learner has to decide, okay, what do I do with this new information? Mm-hmm. So I'm still across the rigor divide because I'm now trying to figure out what my pattern was and whether I'm applying or analyzing, I really don't care. But now I have this new piece that has to fit in here somehow. Right. So do I st- scrap it and start over in my thinking or do I just revise? Do I just change the language? How dramatic is the change or is it nuanced? Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that's the truest moment of learning. Right. Because I'm making meaning instead of accepting meaning. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah, that makes sense yeah. to me. Um so thinking about all of 
all of this discussion so far, how can we maybe guide some of these concepts into the task design that, that you uh, have been working on with your, your latest well, I th work? I think there are two pieces. And in, in our newer book, in the Powerful Task Design, and we actually have the title is hashtag Powerful Task Design. Yeah, I noticed there was the Just to give kind of a little bit of a, a, a nod yeah. to uh, what is the power of technology. Right. And we do know that when human beings send a, a tweet, they typically end with a hashtag. And the hashtag originally was designed to find similar, similarly thinking people, people mm -hmm. who are in the same, same thought pattern. But it's interesting to see how, how some people use the hashtag as a summary. Some people use it as an extension. Some people use the hashtag oh, oh, yeah, as, yeah, a, yeah. as a clever benediction to their thought. Or as a punchline. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So the way we use the hashtag, it yeah. even says that the technology, knowing that that's a technological um, salutation, it becomes a decision I get to make as a learner mm -hmm. or as, as the tweeter. So, so I think there are two ways we can think about the task design, and that is where in your standards does it say a task should start? So like today here at Albemarle, we're going to do a moment. I'm going to start with a kindergarten standard. Um, mm -hmm. And as an AP chemistry teacher, I can still learn a lot from this um, kindergarten moment. If the standard says that students are going to, with support and direction, retell a familiar story identifying key details. Mm -hmm. So if I ask teachers typically, or anybody, how cognitive is that, retelling a story that is familiar with support and help? Mm -hmm. It's really not that cognitive. It's just recall. Right. But the second part of that standard says, and identify key details. And there's the magic moment, because what makes a detail a key detail? Mm -hmm. And key... who gets to decide exactly. that criteria? The reader always gets to decide mm -hmm. that. So what we would play with, in, if we're retelling Cinderella, um, and all you tell me are the sequence of events, those thoughts have already been had by the authors. They are not your thoughts. Mm -hmm. So that's a standard that starts at just you accepting and then repeating. I think we can add a moment to figure out what a key detail is. And instead of having kids put, I don't know, nine moments of the plot in order, all of us identify the beginning, all of us identify the ending. And you tell me only the three most important moments in the text that um, taught you something. And so I've had kindergartners who will then throw out some very dramatic moments of the Cinderella story and just say, okay, she starts by scrubbing the floors. She's an indentured servant. And then the next moment is the animals are building her address. <laughs> and then the next yeah. moment is the, is the sisters tear up the dress. And the next moment is the fairy godmother gives her a new dress. And then she meets the prince and lives happily ever after. So they threw out a whole lot, but they've already made a decision. Mm -hmm. And so when I ask kids to articulate their decision, I, I, in this particular case, I had a, a young lady tell me that she was not going to the ball when she was an indentured servant. When the animals made the dress, she's going to the ball. Right. When the sisters tore it up, she's not going to the ball. When the fairy godmother gave her a dress, she's going to the ball. She lived happily ever after. So they found a pattern of going, right, yeah. not going. It's and like ping pong. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's not explicitly stated in the text. It's there. So the, mm -hmm. kid, the kids get to make a decision about the text. Then they determine from that decision what the key details are, mm -hmm. which is the same thing I want if you're reading Agamemnon right, in, yeah. in high school. Yeah. Um, so I think there are two ways to get to that moment. We either really look at our standards and decide where the standard lives on the rules and procedures side mm -hmm. and skills side and where the standard lives on the here's how you think when you're not in an academic setting. Mm -hmm. And if you think about retelling and sequencing and finding key details, that's what we get to do every day as human beings. What do we value? Mm -hmm. So what are the details that, that add up to that? And then the second way, and this sounds trite and kind of snarky, Jim used to say zip it and flip it. Okay. Yeah. I think that just, was in just, the book. It is in the book. book. Yeah. It is. I mean, and that that just simply means plan the moment you want kids to have, give them the right, typically visual stimulus, and then don't talk. 
Mm-hmm. Let them tell you what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hear them out. Yeah, and, and, mm-hmm. and you're going to do that every time you encounter a new math problem as a mathematician, every time you encounter a piece of text, any time you encounter a new person coming into your life. You have to zip it and flip it because you have to make decisions about what is this person, what is this problem, what is this text saying to me, and, and what, what, was I, what am I looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's both a design piece and a philosophical piece. We work on the design piece. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, with the walkthroughs uh, text, there, there's a lot of, you know, how, how many percent right. points are this occurring and all of that. Right. Um, so if we're looking at the, the task design work as you've got it, I'm assuming that that is going to be the bulk of what you're doing during, say, a lesson. Am I, am I correct? And then, so if you're planning for a task as, as you've laid it out, how, I'm trying to think how to articulate this question in a way that makes okay. sense. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> is, there a, is there a sort of a, a set span that you're thinking of planning or is this task design something that can bridge multiple days? Or, yeah, or I, so we, we try to, especially in the second book, we go deeper into that. We try to separate the difference between a lesson, a task, and an activity. Okay. And so when, when I'm using the word task, it's a moment of cognitive demand. Okay. I have decided that kids will all have to think at a certain level of entry, practice, or exit. Okay. So I'm thinking about, so in a, in a 50-minute class period, I might have an entry task that is across the rigor divide. Mm-hmm. Then I might have a comparative task that's still across the rigor divide. And then we might have three or four procedural moments of just, here's how you do this, practice it. Certainly not a rigorous moment, just a, a procedural accuracy, mm-hmm. fluency practice moment. Um, what we what we try to get teachers to do that I think is not the way we were taught, nor the way we were taught to teach, mm-hmm. is design the most cognitive moment you want first. Mm-hmm. Design that task. And then I'm going to play this game with myself. Do I build to that task in my lesson sequence, right. or do I throw kids into that task? And like one of that deep pool yes, thing and, you were and, talking and again, about one earlier. Of the things yeah. that, if I'm if I'm entering a new unit, um, well, and we we may do this activity today. If we're going to do something with the First Amendment in a social studies class, you know what? You're going to have to start with some knowledge. Probably you're going to have mm-hmm. to know what the First Amendment says. Right. So that's a that's a sequence of lessons that may start at a level one or two rules, tools, procedures, knowledge, mm-hmm. but then become an application task, become an analysis task, become a situational ethics task. Right. Across the rigor divide. But um, I might be doing something with mathematical ideas that I don't want to teach the procedure because if I go there first, I will probably diminish the cognitive right. moment across the rigor divide. So I think it's um, a lesson may have lots of activities. Uh-huh. I-, I want to make sure that as a teacher, I know my most cognitive task in the sequence. Okay, That's the piece I don't think we design. Okay, I think we plan a lot of lessons. Mm-hmm. And I-, I would even say that I think as, as a teacher myself, no, I think I feel sometimes more productive when I plan the lessons mm-hmm. versus design the cognitive spark moment I want every kid to have somewhere in that sequence. So what do you mean? Like a, that the act of doing the lesson, you feel like you're accomplishing something? You're, yeah. You, I've just finished yeah, sure. this thing and then the... And I think, you know, years ago I was I was in this district and when um, when you guys were just putting out the framework for quality teaching, mm-hmm. right? That's uh, QL. Learn, yeah. Learning. That's mm-hmm. what I loved about it. It was learning focused. Yep. But I still think even as, as focused as it was on learning, a lot of professionals saw it as, so this is what the district division is asking me to do as a teacher. Do this, do this, do this. Even though it was a learning framework, 
I still think a lot of us turn it into, so I will do this, and then I will do this, then I'll have mm-hmm. the kids do this. Mm-hmm. And so even as I'm looking around the room that we're in now, like most classrooms in America, there is an expectation of we post our agenda with the essential mm-hmm. question, all of that. And sometimes a poorly written essential question tells the kids exactly what I want you to think. Mm-hmm. So we've destroyed that moment. And I think that's a, that's a perfect example of how planning the lesson sequence right. got in the way of the most important cognitive task moment. Mm-hmm. And so so we um, we try to figure out, we play this game sometimes. When your kids go to sleep tonight, kindergarten through 12th grade, and we have that 10, 20 minute moment of REM where mm-hmm. every stimulus plays again in the right. head, you only get that moment for right. them to see this lesson again. Yep. Do you want them to see the product? Do you want them to see that we were talking? Do you want them to see that you were talking? What do we want them to see? Mm-hmm. And the things I just described are not what I want them to see. Right, yeah. I want them to see some conceptual capture mm-hmm. of, of what we're trying to teach. Okay. So if, if in the First Amendment, I don't want them to see the 49 words of the First mm-hmm. Amendment. I want them to see that those five big freedoms are not separate. Right. They're one big idea. So that's the task I have to design. How quickly can I get kids to a moment where they see that the five freedoms mentioned in the First Amendment are interdependent to each other? Right. So getting them to have some sort of a breakthrough cognitively yes. that ends up becoming the thing that everything else is hinged upon. Exactly. Is that correct? Yeah. And so so I think if I'm not careful, I'll think, okay, so then if I want kids to have that moment where they see that the five are one, then that's what I'll tell them. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to see me telling them. They're not going right. to see the concept. They're going to see yeah, me. Yeah, right. They'll have that little, yeah. little picture of you. Exactly. And there, and there I am them. Up, up there working hard, sweating <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I, while they're watching. So yeah. that, it can't be that passive. Right, right. Um, it's eight o'clock right now. Okay. Um, I want to make sure that we've got enough time for you. Thank um, you. but before we wrap, I do want to make sure that I throw it back to you and see if there's something that you want to include in our conversation that, um, that might be, uh, something that I either overlooked or, or that we didn't cover, or maybe there's something you want to expand on. I, th- I, I appreciate that. And I think Darren, the thing that I would say is, um, I see, I see a lot of professional educators who really want to build curiosity in their learners. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I wonder sometimes if we are designing our classrooms to also build our own curiosity. And that, that means, um, you know, I've got that young man sitting in the back of the classroom who really doesn't enter. He wastefully mm-hmm. sees what other people say, and then he says something so that he doesn't take an emotional, intellectual risk. Right, the checkbox. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so. What I'm wondering is, what are the questions I could ask? What are the design moments I could have as early in the lesson sequence, as early in today's lesson, as early in the unit that would let kids make sense, even if they're, even if they're taking an intellectual risk, mm-hmm. but allow them to take that risk, tell me where that risk comes from so that I can see the truth underneath it. One of the things I've, I learned in, the, in all those classroom visits is I have very mm-hmm. seldom seen a kid be wrong. Mm-hmm. When they sound wrong to us. What do you mean when they sound wrong? When a student says some, let's go back to the Lewis Carroll poem. Um, if kids are reading a poem and they misinterpret something there. Okay. They went wrong. The way they saw that phrase told them a truth that mm-hmm. they interpreted. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that vocabulary, when we say, let's, let's, let's look at the, how this word is used. Let's look at the connotation, the denotation. And when they see that that word is, has a different meaning then they change their thinking. So I don't see kids who are typically wrong if we let them talk about where their thought came from. Right. I find a a misconception. I find a misnomer. I I find a a glitch. Mm -hmm. But if I don't let kids tell me their truths, 
It's almost like a doctor saying, you know, I, I looked at your numbers. Shh, please don't talk to me. I've looked at your numbers. Um, <laughs> right. Here's what I'm going to propose as a prescriptive. Um, I need to hear the patient more. Mm -hmm. And I think in an effort to get it all done, ask a good question. Mm -hmm. Force kids to all commit to their answer. Listen to their answers. Let them share their answers. Build from those. So I think I'm back to the word play again. And right. Curious. Yeah. Well, and, and I think one of the things that, you know, when you mentioned curiosity, I wonder sometimes, and this, I don't necessarily want to go down a rabbit hole here, but um, we do try to think of ways we can encourage curiosity. But at the same time, I think we also sometimes structure how we want them to be curious. I, I would agree. You know what I, I would mean? Agree. And, and um, I think, you know, I'm, as far as how to know that you're getting them where they can have their truth come out right. versus where they're like, okay, I need to show that I'm going to do this thing she'll, so she'll think I'm yeah. curious. Or, or I, I think it comes down to, um, we say this a lot in the, new, in the new book, that when we're designing moments of rigor, it's not our job to design what kids will think, mm -hmm. but to find the question that designs that kids will think. Okay, I like that distinction. So yeah. whether it's an entry into a math problem or a summative moment at the end of a literary unit, I've got to design a task where kids get to think their own unique ideas mm -hmm. based upon truth and logic, um, and then just get out of the way. Right, just stand back and let yep. it happen. Exactly. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, I'm gonna I be. This. I'm gonna be uh, coming into your afternoon. There's episode 18. Thanks again to John for sitting down to talk with me. It was an early morning for the both of us. The sun hadn't even come up yet when I hit record, so uh, I think we did all right. It was, uh, it was definitely fun and, and good to uh, get to talk in depth with him. Um, now, as far as next time goes, we'll be looking at differentiation with Carol Ann Tomlinson. So that's going uh, to be a good episode, too. Now, uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, the handle is at The Ed Narrative. And then, of course, we have our website where you can find the blog as well as this podcast. The address is TheEdNarrative.com. Come by and check it out. Subscribe to the RSS feed, and um, we'll catch you later. Bye.